You're listening to the Bible 126 podcast. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we just praise you that you are a God that answers prayer, and we come before your throne as you've instructed us. And Father, we also bring before you, Father, the tragic victims of the disaster along the Gulf Coast, families that are now without homes and, with, and, and without loved ones and, uh, and with uh, pains and sufferings that we can't even imagine. We pray, Father, we ask you especially, we hold up before you those that are of the kingdom, that you would uh, protect, encourage, strengthen uh, the, uh, the members of the body. But also, Father, we pray for those that through all of this might be called to you. We pray, Father, that your purpose would be accomplished in every life. And we pray, Father, too, that the lessons may not be wasted. We thank you, Father, that you, even before we speak, uh, know the needs. We do pray, Father, that you would just exploit this opportunity to magnify your name and to accomplish your purposes. And, Father, we also thank you for this evening. We thank you that in your kingdom there are no accidents, no coincidences, that we're all here right now by your divine appointment. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity to open that word together as a body. We pray, Father, that you would just open our hearts and lives to what you would have us learn from this evening. As we commit this evening and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we're continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and we're taking tonight chapters 17 and 18, which naturally go together. They both deal with the subject of Babylon, or as Revelation calls it, Mystery Babylon. But by way of review, obviously, we are following the outline that was given John in the beginning of the book to write the things which he had seen, which was a vision of Jesus Christ by then, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Vision of Christ had been seen just before these verses. That was what he had seen. The things which are turn out to be seven letters to seven churches, which are the most important part of the book. If you recently joined this study, I'd like to just underscore that if you're going to get into the book seriously, the two chapters that impact you the most, and in many respects are the most fruitful in many ways, are chapters two and three. But obviously, the, the third and final section of the book is from chapter 4 following, and we are obviously in that section, the third section of the book. And we can't uh, uh, help but notice throughout the book what's called the heptatic structure, the sevenfold structure. Everywhere you turn, I challenge you. I don't think it's possible for either one of us to make an exhaustive list of the sevens in the book of Revelation. Uh, there are many that are very obvious, the seven-sealed scroll, and, uh, and then the seven, seal, uh, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. Noticing that in each group of seven, there is a little parenthesis between the sixth and seventh element, where there's sort of a temporary change of subject. Between uh, seal six and seven, we had the parenthesis sealing this 144,000. 
in the trumpets, we had a five-chapter segment that was a parenthesis before the seventh trumpet was allowed to sound. And having completed that, we went through the seven bowls. And even there, it's just one verse, but there's even a, 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 a noticeable architectural issue the way they're presented. But uh, in the last uh, session, we uh, uh, talked a little bit about the, uh, Nimrod, who founded a place called Babylon, which sets us up for the study tonight. The earliest form of paganism originated in that region under the first world dictator, Nimrod. And uh, in Genesis 10, it describes that, and there's a very important mistranslation to notice in verse 9. Uh, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, but what's lost in the English is that he was in defiance of the Lord. And uh, we went through uh, Josephus and the Targum of Jonathan and the Targ- uh, Jerusalem Targum and other rabbinical sources that me- this is well known to any serious scholar of the Scripture. Many people reading the King James would miss that. I felt important, even in our review here, to highlight it again. But he was a global dictator. His name really means we will rebel. And uh, the final dictator will also be an Assyrian, according to Micah 5 and Isaiah 10 and other passages. So I sometimes refer to him as Nimrod II. Not that he's a descendant of Nimrod directly, but as just an idiomatic way of designating him. And, of course, we also encountered the River Euphrates, a a strange reference of the river in the book of Revelation because it is a a key boundary of some kind, a spiritual boundary. There's peculiar angels bound up in it and so forth. And, or I should say demons, really. But in any case, uh, it is the cradle and also the grave of man's civilization. It's the, it was the eastern boundary of Israel and also the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. So we find it prominent in the uh, Word of God. And uh, it's amazing. I, I was intrigued with Rudyard Kipling. He was more biblically literate than we give, him, give most of those people credit. It says, East is east and west is west, and never the twain shall meet, until earth and sky stand presently at God's great judgment seat. It's interesting how all through English literature we find uh, an awareness of the biblical roots that we have in. But spiritual Babylon, I want to touch on this a little bit because that's really the subject tonight. All forms of occultic practices you encounter have had their origins, it turns out, in Babylon, in the original Babylon. Isaiah 47 is a key reference. There are many others. And, of course, out of this comes a legend. Tammuz, who was presumably the son of Nimrod and his queen, Simiramis, Simiramis, by the way, was the earlier name for Thyatira, which is uh, very provocative if you tie that all together. Um, these three were identified with the sun god who was thought to die at the winter solstice, winter solstice being the, the, uh, uh, the, day, the day of the year in which the days are the shortest, the nights the longest. They, 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 the ancients observed that. They regarded that as the death of the sun god, who then gets reborn is the idea. They celebrated his death by burning a Yule log in the fireplace. Yule was the Chaldean word for infant. And then the next morning, having a trimmed tree in its place, and that was the way they celebrated the, the rebirth, if you will, the resurrection of the moon god. All this occurred about the winter solstice, being 22nd, 23rd. The rebirth would be about the 24th or 25th. Those pagan practices, when Rome becomes Christianized after Constantine and and the second emperor after him uh, made it the state religion, everybody was used to celebrating these pagan practices at that time of year. So they simply, as they became Christians, they adapted these practices with Christian labels. 
It may shock you to discover that the mistletoe, the wassail bowl, the Christmas tree, the Yule log, all these things are Babylonian, not Christian, in their original packaging. And uh, so, for what it's worth. That's also true, by the way, of Easter, the worship of Ishtar, the golden egg of Astarte, the fertility rites of the spring. Rabbits are very uh, uh, prolific, so they're a symbol of fertility. That's how you get a, a strange commingling of the egg of Astarte and the Easter money. you never seen a bunny lay eggs, but that you wonder, where did that come from? Well, it's because you're mixing together two different myths from the ancient pagan uh, uh, fertility rites of the spring and uh, so forth. And the name Easter does not appear in your Bible. There's a mistranslation in the King James. It's actually, it should be Passover. So uh, if you're a real Christian, don't talk about Easter, you talk about Passover. But that'll confuse everybody because they deliberately designed the formula for Easter that we observe not to fall on Passover. It's anti-Semitic in, in, in those councils. But we'll deal with those things in the springtime. Let's go on. When Babylon gets conquered, the priests always follow the money. So that priestly system migrates to Pergamos and then ultimately to Rome. Everything that you see in the movies about pagan Rome is actually Latin packaging of the Babylonian practices. When Rome becomes Christianized, those practices get repackaged in Christian trappings. Uh, and so uh, that's why that's what really is part and parcel of many people's offense by the Roman Catholic Church is because many of those packaging uh, uh, that they the many things they do really derive from the pagan practice, not from a Christian thing at all. But there's more to it than that. Let's move on. Um, okay, um, this is this is just uh, the slides that cover what I've ad libbed here a little bit. We'll move on. Oh, yes, one other thing. The calendar year-end for the uh, ancients were, uh, some of the ancients were October 31st. Um, what, how's that got to do? Well, it turns out that uh, there's been some research that suggests that uh, there was a near pass by by Mars that altered the planet, the orbit of the planet Earth around the year-end, October 31st. But the, the occultic rituals that surrounded that is what led to Halloween, incidentally. So again, our whole holiday schedule is rather fascinating to study as long as we recognize that the roots are mostly, and mostly uh, occultic. The worship of Baal, or another name for Mars, is uh, possibly stimulated by orbital perturbations. All of that's covered in a briefing back called The Signs in the Heavens and, and some of our other materials. We'll just, we won't get into that here. It's a distraction. But the book of Revelation I announced many, uh, many sessions ago is actually can be viewed as a study of two women. The woman of chapter 12 and the woman of chapter 17. When we were in chapter 12, we recognized quite conclusively, I believe, that the woman there clearly is Israel. And uh, in the sense that she began with Eve. But nevertheless, um, Israel is presented there in chapter 12. The woman there is in heaven. She's the mother of a man-child. She's clothed with a son. Her identity is tied up with the sun, moon, and stars in the Matzeroth sense. And we talked about that then. It has the dragon as an enemy. It's hated by the world. It's sustained by the wings of heaven. Had a crown of 12 stars. Again, the Maserat there, the headdress. And uh, its status was as a widow and divorced. That's very curious for something that's going to come up uh, in, in uh, chapter 17. And its final location, of course, will be in the New Jerusalem. That is the believing segment of Israel. In chapter 17, we're going to find a different woman. In fact, a contrast in more ways than most people realize, uh, to the woman of chapter 12. And this woman is riding the beast, the beast being this final world uh, system that we, will talk, we talked about 
in chapter 13. The woman riding the beast is not in heaven, but upon many waters. That will be defined for us as we get into chapter 17. It's not the mother of a man-child, it's the mother of harlots. And it's not clothed with the sun, it's clothed with purple, scarlet, and gold. It reigns over the kings of the earth, interestingly enough. It rides the beast, but the beast eventually turns on her and consumes her. Um, the enemy is the ten kings, ultimately, the ten kings that turn upon her. Um, Israel was hated by the world. The woman riding the beast is caressed by the world. The, uh, the relation, the, the, uh, Israel was hated by the world. This is caressed. Um, it's sustained or gets her, she gets her power from the dragon. The, uh, her headdress bears the title Mystery Babylon the Great. She makes a strange boast that many commentators don't catch. She brags that she's no widow. What a strange thing to say. Um, and I believe she's deliberately contrasting herself with Israel, who is re- pictured in the idioms here as widowed and divorced. And her final location is in the habitation of demons. No surprise. So we'll move on. Mystery Babylon. We're going to talk in chapter 17. I could subtitle it, The Great Whore. I apologize if that term offends you, but it's descriptive and there's no uh, really good equivalent. She rides the beast with seven heads and ten horns that we encountered in Revelation 13. She's described as the mother of harlots and abominations. You need to be sensitive to the use of language here. The term fornication and also the term abomination are idioms that are used synonymously with idol worship. To be unfaithful to the God of the Creator God is to be uh, 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 unfaithful in, 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 uh, in a very deep sense. Um, and uh, here we have a woman that represents the mother of harlots. She's the one that is not only a harlot, she's the mother of all of them. All false religions have their roots in Babel or Babylon. But we're also going to see in the language, let's prepare ourselves for it, she is drunk. What's she drunk on? The blood of the saints. And um, she is guilty of more carnage among believers than any other entity visible in the Scripture. Chapter 18 is going to pick up on this in a little different flavor. It's going to deal with Babylon the Great as a city center, as a political center. And we're going to notice there's three groups of people that are going to be upset when this city gets its final judgment. Kings, merchants, and those that trade by sea. So there's a very uh, pragmatic, political, economic complexion to the efforts in chapter 18. Well, Babylon, you know, you can study the Bible. Many people would recognize that the Bible is a tale of two cities. The city of man, Babylon, and the city of God, Jerusalem. With all its pockmarks, with all its mistakes, with all its negatives, Jerusalem is still always in the role of God's own city. Babylon is mentioned in a counterpoint to Jerusalem over 300 times in the Bible. In fact, it even shows up three times in Christ's genealogy. If you understand how a genealogy is venerated among biblical scholars, uh, that's astonishing. It's the only city that's mentioned at all. It was the capital of the first world dictator, and we believe it will be the capital of the last world dictator. So there's some parallelisms here. Now remember something else uh, uh, that may be useful as you study your Bible. Most of us think of prophecy as prediction and fulfillment. 
Prediction and fulfillment. That's the Greek mind, the Western mind. That's what we, most of us think that way. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But the Hebrew mind sees something beyond that. To the Hebrew mind, prophecy is pattern. And uh, rabbis are constantly sensitive or try to be sensitive to the patterns in the stories and patterns in the history. And, and there's many, many ways that history patterns, uh, 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 people pattern uh, the lives of history, uh, of Israel and vice versa and so forth. And so we want to be sensitive to that. But something else about our study tonight, uh, every once in a while, there is something that we might call a litmus test. That's a term we draw from chemistry, but most of us are familiar with it. Uh, a litmus uh, is an indicator that will tell you whether a solution is either acid or alkaline, whether the pH is below or above 6. But it has become an idiom in common language. A litmus test is something that, it's like a watershed. It lets you know whether it's left or right. Black or white, you know, it's a, if something is bivalued, a litmus test tells you which way it goes. Well, um, there was an interesting litmus test in 1948. Up till then, there was a lot of debate among scholars as to whether Israel was going to be literally regained in the land or not. But on May 14th of 1948, David Ben-Gurion, citing uh, Ezekiel as his authority, named the Jewish homeland Israel. And that should have ended the debate. Those that were taking the Bible literally were vindicated, you would think. It still goes on, but still. Uh, that was a litmus test. Well, we have another one brewing here that's going to be kind of fun because I'm going to show you some things for which there is no evidence on the horizon yet. But I'm going to suggest to you that we're going to have an opportunity over the coming months, maybe years, to see whether or not the perception I'm going to share with you about Babylon a literal Babylon, is valid or not. So we, we have here the makings, not only of an important study, uh, a very important study, uh, we have here a very important study um, for biblical reasons to understand Babylon and what the Bible says. But we also, at the same time, have a dividend here because we will emerge from this study with a candidate litmus test as to whether a strict or tight hermeneutic, a high view of inspiration, is justified or not. So that should be fun. Let's take, jump right into Revelation 17, the one that's on the, sometimes called the great whore. Revelation 17, verse 1, and there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, that's obviously the ones just passed, um, there came uh, one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now, the many waters will be explained to you in verse 15, but uh, we'll get there uh, in a little bit. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, again, harlotry is a form of false devotion. That's the way it's being used here. And uh, harlotry involves a feigned love, a pretended affection, uh, an intimacy for favors, and that sort of thing. And uh, so four times we have the term harlot in this chapter. It's called the great city uh, uh, something like eight times. And Jerusalem is also called the harlot in Isaiah. And uh, Tyre was called a harlot in its way in Isaiah 23. And so is Nineveh in the book of Nahum. But so those terms... 
uh, while we tend to use them narrowly in a biological sense, they're used in the Scripture not to exclude that, but broader to the whole idea of spiritual fornication. So whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, or false affection, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, these seven heads and ten horns are familiar idioms to the prophecy student from uh, Daniel chapter 7 and other passages and several times in the book of Revelation already. This beast, of course, is the one that was described in Revelation 13. It's a political system on the one hand and or the leader of that that, uh, system on the other. And here it's presented as a scarlet-colored beast. That's a very interesting color. Um, That's the color that's been adopted by the Vatican as its primary thematic color. Um, Whom the kings of the earth have committed fornications and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. This is one of those places where Lenin was correct. He said religion is the opiate of the people. Many Christians are offended by that. But he actually is quite accurate. Let's distinguish religion for what it really is. It's man's attempt to cover himself with God, to make things right, and he can't. Uh, God commented on that before the end of chapter 3. Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with aprons of fig leaves. And God replaced them with coats of skins. And in that little one verse in uh, um, Genesis 3, you don't pick up on it until you've read the rest of your Bible and come back there and you realize what God is doing. He's teaching them that by the shedding of innocent blood they would be covered. It's an object lesson. You say the Holy Spirit's dealing in puns. Absolutely. He does that often. And uh, so the control of state religion is one of the most dangerous trends in history and in the current day. Watch that. It's going to increase. And uh, the enforced paganism of our government schools in this country are shredding the fabric of our heritage and destroying the character of our nation. And it's just beginning. That's verse 4. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Well, purple has a lot of different meanings. It certainly was the imperial color of Rome. And uh, every senator and council wore a purple stripe as his badge of his position. And the emperor of of the empire uh, was arrayed in purple. And scarlet is the color that's been adopted in a similar fashion by Roman Catholicism. Um, The golden cup we're going to encounter, and we later on in the study get into the book of Jeremiah. Uh, There are idioms that you'll find in common here. Um, this woman is attempting to rule. The church doesn't rule until her, ju- until her Lord rules. And uh, when her rejected Lord returns to power, which we're going to see in the next session, not the next chapter, in the next session. And uh, so, so we're dealing here, incidentally, with blasphemy. Blasphemy is any attempt that, uh, to add to what God has done or to, or to change what God has done and uh, so forth. So uh, let's just keep moving here. And on her forehead was a name written, 
mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. And it's in caps here because that's the way it is in the text, the manuscript texts, interestingly enough. Um, The word mysterion in the Greek is a little different than our word mystery in the English, from which, of course, it's taken. The word mysterion really refers to a secret that's now revealed. It's sort of like disclosing a password. Once Once it's out, it's no longer a mystery. It was a mystery up till now, so to speak. That's sort of the concept. And uh, we have mystery Babylon here in contrast to the mystery of the true church. They're antithetical, I think, is the intention here. Um, The fact that she's a mother of harlots, I want you to notice that is in the plural. She is the mother of harlots. There are lots of harlots. There are lots of false religions. There are lots of counterfeit religions. Religions that look like they're Christian but aren't. She's the mother of all of those. And uh, let you fill in the blanks. (laughs) Ecclesiasticism leads to harlotry. And uh, we're going to see that in chapter 18 too. Let's move on. uh, Revelation 17, verse 6. I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great. He says admiration here. That's a misleading translation. Awe. Not admiration necessarily favorable. But with great um, awareness. Great awe. Great uh, astonishment. Might be a a better uh, uh, translation of it. Now... If you're, as you're following this, I want to recommend, I don't normally do this, but I want to recommend another non-biblical source that you ought to have for your library if you're, if you're a serious Christian. And that's a book by Dave Hunt called A Woman Rides the Beast. Dave Hunt is a sound scholar, thorough, research, a thorough researcher. Um, he does have some views that I happen to have a slight disagreement with, one of which I'll explain to you when we get to it. But I, ha- I have an extensive library on the subject. The classic work in this area is one by Alexander Hislop, born, uh, published in 1881. And it's, it is in most serious libraries. However, it's very dr- dated. It's also somewhat argumentative. It's not as perfect a reference as you'd like. Dave Hunt has repaired that. He's done a thorough amount of research. It is extremely well documented. It is very controversial because he doesn't pull any punches he makes a very clear linkage between the woman in Revelation, which isn't the beast. It rides the beast. He makes that distinction. Many prophecy buffs that write books are insensitive to the fact that, that the, the Pope is not the Antichrist. The Vatican rides the beast. is isn't the beast. And so, um, but there is a clear linkage to the Vatican. That doesn't mean it's limited to the Vatican, but the Vatican certainly qualifies. The history of the Roman Catholic Church is part of what you need to acquaint yourself with if you're going to understand your Bible. There is no organization on the planet Earth that has murdered more Christians than the Roman Catholic Church. One pope, one afternoon, murdered more Christians than all the Roman emperors put together. And you need to understand that. And the reason I'm, in, I'm not going to get into that in heavy here because there's more to, more to be done, but I, when you understand the history of um, the medieval Europe 
and you see verse 6, you immediately, it draws you to a recognition of the abuse of Christians specifically by the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, the, um, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You can't even find a second choice that comes close to them as an identity here. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that John says, I wondered with great astonishment. If he was shown the blood of the martyrs at the hands of the pagan Rome, he wouldn't be surprised. Pagan Rome is the enemy of the church. But to find the the so-called Christian church guilty of murdering martyrs astonished John. There's a clue right there that the the source of the the, uh, blood of the saints is in a surprising place. In fact, the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and, the, and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. Understand the beast, the seven heads and ten horns, is the political system. The woman rides it, takes advantage of it. There's a romance going on. That system will eventually turn and consume her. And we're going to see that referenced here shortly. Then we get to verse 7. We're getting to some very strange verses here, so be ready. <laughs> Revelation 17, verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. <laughs> you understand that, so we'll just move on. <laughs> no? Okay. What apparently is being portrayed here in this political system, it existed at one time, then disappeared, and now has reemerged. And that's why Bible scholars look, have for centuries looked forward to what they quaintly call the revived Roman Empire. The empire that was extant at John's day, and we'll see references to that here shortly, uh, was obviously the Roman Empire. And it obviously, no one conquered it. As you go through the history of empires from Babylon to uh, Persia to Greece and to Rome, each one was ca- conquered by a, you know, a subsequent empire, not Rome. It fell into pieces. And each of those pieces have had a bid towards world dominion. The Dutch, the French, the German, the English, and so on, Spain. Um, each one had their bid, never quite making it. But the Bible portrays in Daniel 2 and other places that these pieces will recoalesce to reemerge as a revived em- Roman Empire. So this is the beast that was and is not and yet is. In other words, it's, John is seeing this propelled forward in time in the spirit. So he's seeing it as it occurs at the end time. He's watching what's going on at the end times. So this empire that was and then disappeared at this point in, in history yet future has he reemerged. Are you with me so far? It gets worse. Hang on. <laughs> and here's the mind which hath wisdom. You know, I, I really get nervous when I see that phrase because it occurs several times in the Bible and what immediately follows is one of the classic enigmas of our study. But anyway, here's the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. What is a mountain in prophecy? Idiomatically, what is a mountain? Anyone? Remember Daniel chapter 4. What is a mountain? Good for you. Right on. Gold star. The government. The... God's government 
The stone that is cut without hands becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. The idiom is used in the scripture for an organization or a government would be perhaps a better term. The seven heads are seven mountains, in other words, seven governments on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Now, the word kings and kingdoms are identical So we, uh, in the Hebrew. Melech is a king or, 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 or the kingdom. They're idiomatically, you have to, the context determines what you're talking about. But in any case, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, and the other is not, yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. I'll now pass out a written quiz. <laughs> doesn't it, it sounds like double talk, doesn't it? Well, let, per, permit me to try to do a diagram. Let's talk about Satan's seven, what I'll call, super kingdoms. In Revelation 12, 3, back then in chapter 12, you may recall, it said, There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Who was the red dragon? Can you remember? It was revealed to you in verse 9 of chapter 12. What was it? Satan. Satan. Good for you. So the red dragon is the one that's behind all of this. These seven kingdoms, in some sense, are his. Okay? What are the seven kingdoms? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and I'm going to say Rome in two phases. What I'll call Rome phase one, ancient Rome that we all know from history books. And we're all called, for lack of a better term, Rome phase two, the Rome that is yet to reemerge. Obviously, many scholars suspect that the European Union that's emerging is a predecessor to what, what is forthcoming. It ain't here yet. I'm not saying it is. It may be the seedbed from which it's going to sprout. And, of course, this Rome phase two is the one that has the ten horns in the, the book of Daniel and also in the book of Revelation. So the seven heads, ten horns is an idiom common to both Daniel and Revelation. Okay, now the ten horns show up in Daniel 2, um, 7, uh, 13, in Revelation 13, 7, and, uh, 17, and so on. So familiar ground. Now, when Daniel was writing, he was writing at the time of Babylon. Egypt and Assyria for him were history. So he talks about the present uh, 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 empire as Babylon, followed by Persia, and Daniel's own career spans both of those, interestingly enough. And after Persia comes Greece and Rome, and Daniel's, Daniel's visions spells these all out. He speaks of four beasts. There were four medals in the metal, uh, in, in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's image, gold, silver, brass, and iron. And there are f- four beasts that come out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7. Same subject, different idioms. I'm saying Daniel's four plus one because that last beast, the fourth beast, develops a a separate phase. So I'm calling it four plus one to avoid confusion here. Okay? Now, the fourth empire of Daniel thus is in two parts, what I'll call Rome one and Rome uh, two. And if if this is confusing to you, I encourage you to go back and review our commentaries in in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter two and Daniel chapter seven being prime here. Now, verse 10 of Revelation 17 said, And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. 
There are seven kings. There are the seven kings. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome in two phases. Those are seven. Okay. Five are fallen. At the time that John is writing, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece are past tense. They're gone. They're history. Okay? So five are fallen and one is. And the one is is obviously the, the, the empire extant that, uh, John, that has John in exile in Patmos at the time. Okay? There are seven kings, five are fallen, one is. And the other is not yet come. That's the final phase of Rome, the seventh of that seven. We're together so far? Straightforward, isn't it? And when he, that is, this, the other's not yet come. When he cometh, he must continue a short space. The next verse in, in Revelation 17, namely verse 11, And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. Now the reason this is confusing is because all of us have fixated on the ten kings of Daniel 10. We keep forgetting there's an eleventh. A little horn sprouts up in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. And uh, I'm going to, instead of calling him the little horn, because that gets ambiguous, there's some other issues there, I'm just going to call him the 11th horn. There are 10 horns. Another one springs up. He, uh, uh, seven of them go along with him. Three don't. He puts them down. That's why you got seven and 10 all the way through. And that's all explained in Daniel. But in any case, the beast that was and is not, that's this seventh beast, even he is the eighth because he's going to be taken over by this super leader, this coming world leader, the guy that we call the Antichrist. We, t- we studied him in um, Revelation chapter 13. There are 33 titles that are labels of him in the Old Testament, 13 in the New. He's very, very, a great deal of scripture has been uh, put about him. We shouldn't waste too much time on him. We should keep our, time, our focus on the one that's in chapter 19, not 13. And that's coming. But the eighth is the eleventh horn. So with this perspective, it all seems to make sense. There are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. When he cometh, he must continue a short space. His career won't be long, apparently. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven. So, okay, where does he come out of? He's of the seven. Really? Okay, which of the seven uh, doesn't exist today? There's only one here that's not, that has not re-emerged in, in history. From 1927 on, Egypt, Greece, Persia, all these have re-emerged on the world scene. There's only one that hasn't. The, the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. And we know from Micah 4, excuse me, Micah 5 and Isaiah 10 that the leader is going to come out of an empire that no longer exists, Assyria, interestingly enough. Okay. Now that you have mastered that material, we move on. Verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, but have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. And they have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. There are all kinds of books written speculating on who the ten nations are. Uh, Some try to pick existing nations. There's another view that the world has been divided into ten regions, and you see books like that. Don't waste your time. Because it says here, the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet. So I don't expect to see them on any atlas right now. Okay? 
but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Now, I don't necessarily believe that 60-minute hour, but the term is a, 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 a distinct, specific period of time. Okay? It's the hour of whatever. You know, it doesn't mean it's 60 minutes, but it's, it's the time of focus. They're going to have their spotlight. They'll be in the spotlight for a brief time with the beast. They have one mind, shall give their power and strength to the beast. If we understand the passages in Daniel, three of them object and get put down. That's why there's, out of ten, there's seven and, seven and ten. So, anyway, we'll move on. They shall make war with the Lamb. Can you imagine the audacity? I can understand people not believing in Christ. I can't imagine taking up arms against Him. Big mistake. <laughs> they shall make war with the Lamb, and, and the Lamb shall overcome them. That is probably one of the biggest understatements in the Scripture. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Love that. Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Love that verse. Leads to a great bumper sticker. Beware the lamb. I love that. <laughs> verse 15. When he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's a consistent idiom in the Scripture. The wicked are like the troubled sea which cannot rest, Isaiah tells us. And you find that phrase all through the Bible, that waters are used idiomatically of the unrest among nations and people and tongues, the lack of peace, the lack of calm, the turbulence. The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and, things, and, and, and tongues. And the Ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast. These shall hate the whore. Finally, that's at the end. And shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Ooh. This is an echo of Jezebel in a sense. In a certain sense, you can almost take the whore and Jezebel. Jezebel is an Old Testament idiom. Um, that's why she surfaces in the letter to Thyatira, which clearly is a relationship here. They say, will the church go through the uh, tribulation? Yes, I know, one, I, know, I know of one that will. It has been promised to. In Revelation 2, verse 21, the church of Thyatira, if they don't repent, I will cast them into great tribulation, the Lord himself says in writing. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Present tense by John. What city during the days of John ruled over the kings of the earth? Rome. And that endured through a good part of the medieval history. In fact, you will not understand the history of Europe unless you see it as a struggle for temporal power by the Pope trying to control kings, trying to get lands. Now, Italy finally rescued themselves and left them just the city and so forth. The whole history of, of Europe is a struggle um, involving the papacy. And, uh, and obviously the Reformation is but a part of that whole struggle. Okay. And couple summary remarks before we jump in 18. Notice that the prostitute is not the beast. It rides the beast. She initially exploits the beast but is eventually destroyed by him. Fair enough. 
the reference to the golden cup will pick up when we get into Jeremiah here in a little bit. And Mystery Babylon is a false religious system that's been identified with the city of Rome from the earliest centuries until now. You'll find these discussions very obvious in the very early church, Augustine and others. And it certainly carried through the, the uh, medieval period. Many with very poor scholarship tried to equate the Pope with the Antichrist. That's a failure to really discern the, the subtleties here. But uh, clearly that's, uh, that was part of the, the language that was used uh, pro and con. There are ten clues as to the identity of Babylon. She's a prostitute, promiscuous, unfaithful, that's straightforward, has universal influence over all the world. This is not an Italian thing or a, uh, uh, some particular... It's all nations. She's seated upon the beast. That is, she steers and dominates the beast. She, purple, scarlet, and gold are her jewels. I've resisted the temptation to put some Vatican photographs in here to give you a feeling for that. The golden cup is precious, but it's a counterfeit. It's filled with abominable things. We'll get into that more. Mystery of Babylon the Great is linked with the Babylon of Nimrod in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 and elsewhere. But mother of prostitutes has spiritual offsprings, not alone. This is not a single system. It's the fountain of many systems. So to assume that it's just the Vatican is naive. And the, the, the Pope calls himself the vicar of Christ. The word antichrist doesn't mean against Christ as it does in the English. In the Greek, the antichristos really means a pseudo-Christ, in the place of Christ. And that's what the word vicar means, by the way. But don't, don't, don't get confused here. That's one reason I don't like the term antichrist for the world dictator. Because the antichrist is, is a term that only John uses in his letters... John was the author of Revelation and didn't use that term in Revelation. So I don't think we should either. It's stuck so you, in, in, the, in our culture so you can't get rid of it. But the word Antichrist is misleading because it tends to cause you to think of the religious leader as the religious leader. No, it's a false prophet. It's a duet. A political leader and a religious leader working in tandem. Prosecutor of Christians revels in their blood. And I, I, I just refer you to Dave Hunt's thorough research in this area as one example. If you have a, a copy of Haley's Bible Handbook, one of the earlier copies, you'll find it as a section in the back that will lay this all out for you. If you happen to have picked up one of the Billy Graham editions of those, you'll notice that particular segment has been expurgated. That's part of the move towards ecumenicalism. And I won't go down that path right now. Let's move on. But the point is, if you can get a complete copy of uh, Haley's Bible Handbook, there's an excellent summary of the ecclesiastical history that, that we're talking about here. It's a, a city on seven hills. Rome is built on seven hills. They have names. Aventine, Galen, Capitoline, Escaline, Palatine, Quirinal, and Viminal. I'm probably... Uh, 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 desecrating the Latin here, but anyway, there are each one of those. Each one of those hills. Uh, where's John Leffler when we need him? Huh? Uh, uh, each one of those uh, hills have a name, actually. And the tenth clue: the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And in John's day, of course, that could only be Rome. So those are ten reasons that we tend to identify it with Rome. Let's move on to Revelation 18, which really focuses on Babylon the Great as a city, as the political entity more than the. Uh, 
The Babylon 17 and 18, I believe, are the same. Some people say there's, well, one's a religious Babylon, one's a commercial Babylon. Uh, I don't happen to subscribe to that dichotomy because I don't think it's scriptural. The usage of the word Babylon is never used of the beast or its heads, which that would imply. Um, There's a context both before and after Revelation 18, which causes me to lump them together. And uh, the uh, uh, statements of Revelation uh, 18 uh, tie to Revelation 6. So I see them both as the same one. You do your own study, come to your own conclusions. I'm just uh, telling you that's where I come out. Revelation 18, verse 1. Metatauta occurs again after these things. After what things? The things you've just heard. I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. The double reference there. When you see the double reference, like is fallen, is fallen, we have a passage in the scriptures that says that indicates, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Joseph explains that to Pharaoh because there was a double reference and he saw his dream twice. And uh, he says, because you saw it twice means it's going to be certain and very soon. That's basically. It's fallen, it's fallen. It's coming very soon. And it's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Wow. Um, We're going to see this as fallen as fallen from the Old Testament again in reference to Babylon. So that'll show up again. But notice it's become a habitation of devils, demons. And I believe this is true of the literal Babylon. The Babylon that's there 55 miles south of Baghdad. And it's the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Remember when we were studying uh, Matthew 13, the, the parables of Christ. What were the birds in those parables? They were the ministers of Satan. Twice. And early, when they take the seed, and uh, uh, later on when they lodge in the branches of the monstrous tree and so forth. It's interesting to see, this is what some scholars would call the principle of expositional constancy, which is just a fancy way of saying that the Holy Spirit tends to use idioms consistently. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And we're going to see those detailed here shortly. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. I'm very encouraged by the fact that of the 144,000, there were none lost. On the... On the uh, uh, Ark of Noah they ended with what they started with God's protection is perfect it's not partial not approximate and uh, none were lost Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 is able to declare to the Father of those that you've given me I have lost none so if you're Christ you cannot be lost I heard another voice from him saying come out of her my people the ones that are his people did or are coming out, whatever. That she received not of her plagues, and her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. And uh, we get into all kinds of doctrines that emerge from this, but let's move on. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, and the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double. 
Double, double, trouble, and double, right? That sounds like something out of uh, Macbeth, doesn't it? Right? No, I'm being facetious, but okay. Heavy stuff, though. She's in trouble. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. I got news for her. She's got, a lot, she's got more sorrow than she can imagine. I know of uh, no sorrow greater. Double, 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 all the way through here. This boast that Jesus, I sit a queen and am no widow, is interesting. I see this as deliberately trying to contrast herself with Israel, who is presented in the Scripture as widowed and divorced. And, uh, and she'll see no sorrow. Boy, got news for you. I can't help but think of prominent authors that write novels that, that are blasphemous. I'm thinking of Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Codes and things like that. They write these blasphemous novels because they sell and they can sell a lot of books and make a lot of money. Boy, I wouldn't trade places with him for all the money in the world. Can you imagine when he stands before the judgment seat and discovers the guy in charge, the guy he went out of his way to libel? Boy. But uh, here we have a whole system that has made a practice through history of blasphemy. Not just paganism. Blasphemy. You know, it's, 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 it's one thing to worship a false idol. It's quite another to desecrate the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Daily. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. See, it's going to be very sudden when it happens. Therefore shall her place come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. Do I hear an amen? <laughs> okay. Verse 9, And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Let's pause for a minute. Uh, I didn't open with these remarks. I meant to. I forgot to. Um, there are many people that write books that think Babylon is simply symbolic of the world or the commercialism or it's, it's symptomatic of New York or Hollywood. There's various variations of this. But they treat Babylon as a, 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 a categorical symbol. And I understand the logic or the, the appeal of that. Uh, I don't happen to hold that view. Um, I don't think Babylon is an idiom for New York or the United States or Las Vegas or anything like that. Um, I think it's uh, a specific place. It may represent all that is evil as the source of all that is evil. But, um, and I'll show you why, how that's going to come about. But the point is, um, uh, we see here that when she gets nailed, it's very specific, it's very sudden, and apparently there's going to be three groups of people that are going to be standing afar off. We're going to see the same phrase repeated three times. Here it's the kings of the earth in verse 9. The kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. They're apparently not in the smoke yet. They see it. Standing afar off for fear of her torment. Why are they standing afar off? Is it radioactivity? I have no idea. 
saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. So this is sudden and catastrophic. Get the picture? This is going to be underlined from some Old Testament passages I'll show you. Now we have the second group. And I want you to notice the, the, the similar phrase here. The merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her. For no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. This is a commercial issue here. And then just to keep scholars from allegorizing this, we have 28 cargoes listed here. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all fine wood, and all manner vessels of ivory, and all manner vessels of most precious wood, and of brass, and iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and odors, and ointments, and frankincense, and wine, and oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and beasts, and no sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, and the souls of men. Now, you can take all these symbolically and you start right now. Okay, let's figure out what cinnamon means and so on. But uh, I think these 28, which is four times seven, by the way, I think these uh, are listed here by the Holy Spirit specifically to be a barrier to allegorizing them. These are tangible goods that the merchants are upset about not being able to sell because they somehow became very dependent upon this religious system. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all the things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. So, so far we've got two groups, the kings and the merchants. And the merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off. There, same phrase again. For fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, so great riches has come to naught. Now we get to the third group. And every shipmaster and all the company in the ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? So I think it's a city. I think it's a great city. Um, Now, that creates an interesting problem and an opportunity for us as we go forward here. But let's, first of all, pause and notice the three groups. What three groups of people? There are kings, merchants, and ship captains, or those that trade by sea. Why did the Holy Spirit pick that particular threesome to be representative of general commerce? I don't know, but I suspect it's... Let me put it this way. I think it's rather interesting when you understand the roots of the European Union. After World War II, there were many uh, 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 people that were very obviously disturbed by the rubble that was Europe. And they decided that we could never let that happen again. So they tried to get in some treaties and things to prevent, and none of them really, no, no one was really ready for that. But there were some visionaries. that this, The way you're going to unite Europe is to unite the economy first and then unite... And then and and build on that, so they formed a, a a strange organization called the European Coal and Steel Community in the Treaty of Paris in 1951. Very strange organization because it involved making a common control of iron, coal, and steel among many uh, six different countries, six signature countries. It turned out to be very ambitious, but 
very successful. It became the model of a similar set of treaties in uh, 1958, March of 57, in fact, in 58, called the European, uh, uh, they they formed uh, the European Common Market. They have now European Coal and Steel Community with a commission. They have the European Economic Community, called the, which the press calls the Common Market, and the European Atomic Energy Community. In 1963, I think it was, or 67, those three entities merged to become the, not the, the, the European community. So the roots of that was in trade. The whole thing is built on world trade. And out of the European community, after that, matured a while, they had the Master's Treaty, which formed the European Union. But the point is, it's an evolution, if you will, that's moving toward what I believe will be what I'll call Rome Phase 2. But its roots are what? On world trade. And I think that's one of the things the Holy Spirit's pointing out here. Moving on. And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour is she made desolate. And then we have, we have verse 20. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. You know what's interesting about this? This is the only place in the book of Revelation you have a command to, be re- to rejoice. <laughs> the world exchanged gifts when the two witnesses were killed. They celebrated. But here's a command to us. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets. For God hath avenged you on her. This is a, this is a big deal. This isn't just incidental to these different judgments. This is a major pivotal... Uh, there's two chapters on this thing. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it under the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of the harpers and musicians and of the pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of the millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of the candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride that's interesting, shall be heard no more at all in thee, for the, thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by, by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. Praise God. Well, the origin of Babylon, I think we talked about that, where it started with Babel and the beginning of Babylon. And, uh, and uh, we've had this history before. It's a literal place. Um, just to give you a quick snapshot of its history, because it's important to make another point here, uh, we can we can study this. The ruins are there. You can. Uh, we, it was unusually well protected because it straddled the River Euphrates, which gave it a source of water in case of siege, and also pro- provided water for the the double moat that was around it. And uh, on October 12th, of course, Cyrus's general captured it without a battle. We've talked about this when we were in Daniel 5. The uh, Persians had diverted the river Euphrates into a canal upriver so that the water level dropped and they slipped under the, uh, the flood defenses and took over the town without a battle. That's a very important point. Uh, we all know the story of Daniel's uh, um, the handwriting on the wall. And according to the Talmud, it was encrypted with a form of Hebrew encryption called Atbash, which is a transposition code with the second half of the alphabet folded back, and then you just transpose the letters. It's a form of encryption that occurs, one of two forms at least, that are in the Bible. But anyway, uh, so this is what 
apparently was written on the wall, which they could not read, could not understand. And, uh, but uh, Daniel was able, he brought out of retirement, he was able to read it, and he was the first cryptographer in history, apparently. Uh, but he, uh, many, many, Tekel Parson, this is your number to reckon, your number's up, in other words. Um, you're found in the ba- uh, weighted in the balances and found wanting. And the word paras, remember the vowels are inferred. Paras means broken or divided. Paras with A's is an idiom for the Persians, which have just taken over. And so, uh, so it is. So, but the interesting thing about this whole episode, 10 days later, uh, Cyrus makes his grand entrance. This general had conquered the place. He he's, comes in and Daniel, he's greeted by Daniel. This is all in Josephus, by the way. He pre- Daniel meets him and presents him with an ancient scroll of Isaiah, which contains a personal letter written to him by name written 150 years earlier. Isaiah died 150 years before Cyrus was born. And what the letter says, that you'll find it in Isaiah 44, it says, Thus saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. Thus saith Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. It's predicting that Cyrus is going to release the Jewish captives now that he's conquered Babylon. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, strange word for a Gentile, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. Can you imagine Cyrus reading his name in this letter? And it outlines his career. And I will loose the loins of kings. I haven't gotten into that, but I think you know what happened to Belshazzar when his knees smote one against the other and all that. Anyway, that was obviously a very public embarrassment. Uh, to open before him the two-leaved gates, the gates shall not be shut. I'll go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I'll give thee the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord which called thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. And he goes on. Can you imagine Cyrus's astonishment to have God writing him a letter over a century before he was born? And he, here he is reading it. He was impressed, wouldn't you be? So, uh, so he frees the captives, gives them financial incentives to go back and rebuild their temple and so forth. And that's the whole story in Ezra and so on. If you go to London, I encourage you to go to the British Museum, and you'll see the Cylinder of Cyrus on display there. It's about this big, not very large. Um, and uh, it has the translation there where he brags to the world that he captured Babylon without a battle. I want to mention that because most Bible helps are wrong. They confuse the fall of Babylon to the Persians with the destruction of Babylon described in the Bible. I'm coming to that. Very important point. And, uh, and, and of course, his his decree to let them go is recorded in Ezra chapter 1, where he says, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord of God in Israel, for he is the God. Which is, this is Cyrus. This is, his, this is his decree. Well, after this, Cyrus claims the, the title king of Babylon, makes his son region. Things stayed peaceful until his death. Then Darius II comes up, and there's a whole bunch of rulers that follow. And uh, I won't go through all of these here, except to recognize that there's a gradual deterioration of the area. Herodotus visits about 460 B.C. and reports that it was virtually intact at that time, 460 B.C., several centuries later. Um, Then Greece rises to power. Alexander is welcomed by the Babylonians um, after his victor over the Medes and Gagamela, and he was acclaimed king. Nine years later, he, he made Babylon his capital. Nine years later, he planned to make extensive renovations and a port, 
Most of us don't realize that Babylon from the south could be dredged to be a major port uh, for a thousand warships. He dies, though, before that happens. And his career is detailed in advance in Daniel 8, and his successors also in Daniel 11. But the point is the Greek Empire uh, is, breaks up into four parts. We've been through this many times. But then another city gets built that rivals it more and more favorable routes and so forth. So Babylon starts to... Uh, Babylon's on, on the Euphrates. Uh, Seleucia is on the Tigris. And it, uh, it expedited the decline of the ancient metropolis. Even in 75 AD, the merchants are still trying to make a go of it. Trajan visits in 115 AD and several others visit anyway. Gradually, it becomes uh, a, a ruin. There are still people living there, though. Robert Koldewey, the German archaeologist, hires locals to help excavate it in the 1800s. Now, in contrast to that, be sensitive to the doom of Babylon and it, as distinguished from the fall of Babylon in 539 B.C. The fall of Babylon was without a battle. It became Alexander's capital. It atrophied over the centuries, and it's presently being rebuilt is the point. Now, why is that so important? Because the destruction of Babylon is described in detail in the Bible, in uh, Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 15 and 51. And it's going to make a couple of points. It'll never again be inhabited after it's destroyed. The building materials won't be reused. It'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and mystery Babylon, of course, is what we're dealing with in Revelation. And if you, if you read these six chapters at one time, you can build a matrix of how they interleave and overlap and, and, and complement each other. And I'll leave you to do that. We won't take the time right now to do it. But let's just take some highlights. In Isaiah 13, we find the kingdoms of the nations gathered together to destroy the whole land. That does not describe the fall of Babylon by the Persians. Kingdoms of nations gathered together. No, it was just the, the, the Persian Empire. To destroy the whole land. This occurs in a time which the prophets called the day of the Lord. That's yet future. And it says, The stars of heaven and constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the new moon shall not cause her light to shine. That sounds like Matthew, Solomon's discourse, doesn't it? It certainly hasn't happened in 539 B.C. And punish the world for their evil and so forth. And it goes on. But... um, the earth shall remove out of her place. God says, I'll shake the heaven and the earth will remove out of her place. That hasn't happened, so you'd notice. And uh, the Medes will stir up against them. Because of that passage, many commentators figure, well, this has to do with the Medes conquering Babylon way back then. No, the Medes are the Kurds. They still have a future too. Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans excellently shall be as when God overthrow. Notice it's the, Cald- it's the pride of the Chaldeans here. This is not a symbol of Rome or Paris or New York. No, it's on the banks of the Euphrates. Shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. That was catastrophic and sudden, obviously. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah make that remark. And once it's destroyed, Isaiah says, it will never again be inhabited. Neither shall it be dwelled in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. Isaiah 14 continues that uh, Israel will be in their own land when this happens. That was not true before 1948. And the people shall take them, bring them to their place. The house of Israel shall possess them and so forth. Um, in the end of Isaiah, there's a couple of references that really caught my attention. Twice Isaiah speaks of Palestine. That was a label that the, that the uh, uh, Romans gave it uh, to expunge it from Jewish presence. But that occurs in the 2nd century. Be, rejoice thou not! 
whole Palestina because of the root of him that the smote these broken and so forth. And then again, uh, howl, O gate, cry, O city, thou whole Palestina art dissolved for there shall come from the north a smoke and none shall be alone in his appointed times. And I'll let you jump in these passages. Jeremiah is very lengthy. I'll just hit a few of these. Uh, Babylon against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Notice the identity here is not Rome. It's not a symbol for Rome as some people say. Even in uh, 1 Peter 5.13, there's Peter says, the church at Rome greets you. There are people that think that, excuse me, the church at Babylon greet you. Many scholars feel that's a code for Rome. That's nonsense. Peter was in Babylon. Babylon was a major Jewish center. There were, when Cyrus released them to go back and build their temple, only 50, less than 50,000 went. A lot just stayed there. And Babylon, through the centuries, becomes a major Jewish center. The Babylonian Talmud was written there in Babylon in the 5th, uh, 6th century. There's also a Jerusalem Talmud, which is false. It was written in Tiberias, not Jerusalem. But the one that's considered authoritative by the rabbis is the Babylonian Talmud. No Babylon. The, Peter's letter came from Babylon, like it says it did. See, there's a lot of attempts to try to make Babylon Rome or something. But no, Babylon is Babylon here against the land of the Chaldeans. And uh, those days at that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they shall be the children of Judah together, going and weeping, and they shall go and seek the Lord their God. That's kind of exciting. Oh, there's, this is a, I, I love this verse 9. I always like to highlight this. These are smart, smart weapons. Their arrows shall be as of a mighty expert man, none shall return void. Uh, arrows can be any kind of uh, discharge of an engine of war. But the word expert man is sakal, it is a hefil uh, participle, masculine singular absolute. It's a property of the arrow. The expertise is in the arrow, not the shooter. And uh, none shall return very Anyway, it's, it's smart weapons. But uh, also in Jeremiah, because of the wrath of the Lord, it shall not be inhabited, but it shall be wholly away, desolate, permanently. It has, that's, that's not true now. In those days, in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. So Israel's cleaned up here. And again, uh, in uh, verse 25, in the land of the Chaldeans, it's talking about here. Uh, be no more inhabited forever, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, Jeremiah says. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. There's that phrase again. I think God means what he says and says what he means. And he always established things by two witnesses. Here are two witnesses, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Behold, a people shall come forth from the north, a great nation, many kings shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. Many kings shall be raised from the coasts of the earth. I think that's interesting. And 51, pretty much the same thing. Israel had not been forsaken or Jude of God, though the land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. That's going to be dealt with. The golden cup in the Lord's hand had made all the earth drunken and uh, suddenly fallen and destroyed. I will render into Babylon and so forth. Again, the inhabitants of Chaldea and so forth. And all the earth, desolate forever. It's all through here. I just picked a few of these. It's a lengthy passage. And uh, Babylon's a desolation without an inhabitant. And there's also the analogous to the thrashing floor, which of course is a, also an echo of a, a Book of Ruth, chapter 3, verse 9. And uh, Babylon shall become a dwelling place for dragons, an astonishment, a hissing without an inhabitant. And how uh, Shishak, that's a code for Babylon. I won't take the time to explain that. And how is the praise of the whole earth surprised? How has Babylon become an astonishment among the nations? A land wherein no man dwelleth and so forth. So don't confuse the fall of Babylon with the destruction of Babylon. Now, 
And you can read those six chapters, Isaiah 13, 14, Jeremiah 15, 51, and Revelation 17, 18 at one sitting, and make your own chart and come to your own conclusions. Okay, now how does the Vatican in Rome end up in, in Chaldea? I don't know. But the book of Zechariah has a strange vision where, with an ephah, a woman called wickedness, is sealed inside of this volumetric commercial measure called an ephah and sealed with a talent of lead, carried by two women that have wings of a stork. That's an unclean bird, by the way, between earth and heaven to build it a house in the land of Shinar and she'll be established and set there upon her own base. And if you read Zechariah 5, it essentially says this, how the angel talked to them, said, lift up now thine eyes, see what's go forth. What is it? He said, this is the ephah that goeth forth. He said, moreover, this is their appearance in all the land. And behold, there's lifted up a talent of lead, that's about 100 pounds, and, and seals this woman sitting in the midst of the ephah. And it's, she's labeled, this is wickedness. I believe that's the harlot we're talking about. And he cast her down in the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth thereof. And I lift up my eyes and saw, behold, there came forth two women. These aren't angels, they are women somehow, and the wind, it's a vision of course, the, the wind was in their wings, now they had wings like the wings of a stork, to a Jew that's an unclean bird, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and heaven. This is a vision, remember. And he says, where are they going? He said, well, to build her a house in the land of Shinar, that's the area, that's the, if, if Babylon is a city, Shinar is the county, the land of Shinar, and when it is prepared, she shall be set there in her own place. I believe the power system that migrated to Rome is destined to be brought back to Babylon where it all started in order to receive the judgment that God has reserved for her. And if you look there today, I won't go through the whole thing here, but we have uh, one of the prizes of Saddam Hussein was his rebuilding of the city of Babylon. Just beginning, but a substantial beginning. His palace on a synthetic hill overlooks that place. Here's an aerial photograph of Saddam Hussein's palace is there. Ruins of the old Tower of Babel is there. We'll blow that area up and write. There's the processional way. We'll blow that part up. This is, this is the ancient ruins of Babylon. There's the processional way. There's the museum where the, the, the artifacts were uh, pulled out from in Daniel 5 for their party, which, of course, <laughs> ended in disaster. So Babylon, mentioned over 300 times. Um, we're now ready for chapter 19 where we see the heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called what? The word of God. This is the big event in the next chapter that we're now ready for. So uh, um, for your next session I expect you to read chapter 19 and review any notes you might have on the ancient Jewish wedding. And with that, that concludes our session. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can see more podcasts on anchor.fm forward slash Bible 126. 
Also, there is a feature there where you can sponsor or make a donation to this page. Thank you and stay tuned for more episodes.